morning, church. I don't know about you, but that makes me nervous, and I have to talk to you today. So anyway, thank you, uh, folks, for being here today. My name is Brad Brady. I'm one of your elders here at the church, and I get to fill in. I get the honor to fill in for Nathan, who's taking a, a week off. You know, there's something important about that, too, uh, congregation, because I know you support this, too. We have a treasure in our pastor, Nathan, and we want to, yes, we do, amen to that. And we want to make sure we give him the right care, the right protection and things, so it's good for him to schedule some time off. And I just want to thank you. Um, you know, from time to time, you're going to hear some different voices up here to give Nathan a break. And I just want to thank you for your graciousness and support of that effort. Well, let's get started here today. I was going to start with a joke, but anybody that heard me speak the last time I was at church, I told a story about my wife's uh, words of encouragement years ago, right before, just seconds before I got up to speak to the church. Uh, I was looking to her for some wisdom, and she looks me in the eye and she says, just don't try to be funny. So... <laughs> So, out of love and respect for dear Katie, I won't start with a joke, but I will start with a story. We were on the phone with our daughter, Courtney, who lives in New York City. We were on the phone with her last Sunday, and she was telling us, one of the things that blesses our heart is our daughter, Courtney, has found a great church home in New York City. She goes to Hillsong, NYC, Hillsong, New York City. And it's wonderful that she's found a place to worship and connect and be in communion with God's people. But she talked, they had a guest speaker last week, and she was talking to us about the message he gave. Uh, their guest speaker was Reverend Dr. A.R. Bernard, and he's also a pastor of a large church in uh, Manhattan, and he's an author of many books. But he said this to uh, their congregation, he said, after decades of being in the ministry, and after 48 years of marriage, he's discovered that there are four things that God expects and wants from a man. Maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. And he went on to say there are four things that a woman wants from a man. Maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. And there are four things that men struggle with in life. <laughs> you guessed it. Maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. You know, in the past few weeks, we've been in Jonah chapter 1. You might turn your Bibles there. We'll be starting in Jonah chapter 2. But in chapter 1, we see Jonah struggling with these very things as well. To bring you up to speed, Jonah was a prophet living in a time when Israel was being harassed by the Assyrians, their long-standing enemy. And God told Jonah, God had a plan, he told Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was the capital, the Assyrian capital, and preach against their wickedness and call them into repentance. Jonah didn't like God's plan. The Assyrians were his enemy, and he didn't like the idea of God showing them mercy and grace. So he wanted nothing to do with the plan. So what does Jonah do in his maturity, his decisiveness, his consistency? He runs away, right? He got on a ship going exactly the opposite direction from Nineveh to get away from God and hopefully get away from how God wanted to use him in his plan. But it didn't work. 
While at sea, God brought about this massive storm to come up against the ship, and the ship's crew was terrified. They knew this was no ordinary storm. It had to come from some higher power. So they, uh, they cast lots to see whose sin or who among them was responsible for the gods being mad at them. Well, the lot fell on Jonah, and he admitted his guilt that he was running away from God, that he was in rebellion. And so he told them, he told the crew, throw me overboard so that the sea would become calm again. So that's exactly what they do. They took Jonah up, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Well, it may have grown calm on top of the water for the ship and the crew, and they praise God for it, by the way. But the storm was still raging for Jonah because now he's in the deep and he's being sucked down to the bottom of the sea, sure to drown in the depths below. And that's where we pick up the story today. So I wonder if you've ever thought about the great lengths that God goes in order to save us from ourselves. The great lengths God goes in order to save us from ourselves. If I look back over my life, I can see instances where God showed up he went to great lengths to save me from some stupid decision I might have made, some crisis I have gotten into. But I think if you look at your lives as well, you'll see those moments where God shows up to save us. So in chapter 2 of the book of Jonah, we find one of the great prayers of the Bible. It's part description of what happened to Jonah when he was thrown overboard in the sea and a part a prayer of surrender and thanksgiving. So as we look at the strange place uh, that Jonah ends up in in chapter 2, we see him experiencing through this prayer that we're going to read about, experiencing these different phases of his relationship with God that I think we can relate to and we can certainly gain insight from and we can certainly find hope through. So the first phase that we see in this prayer that Jonah is saying is we see him asking God for help. So Jonah 2, 1 through 2, says, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. You listened for my cry. So first, let's look at the place that Jonah finds himself in, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Where is Jonah physically? It says he's inside a fish. Well, how did that happen, and why? How is that even possible? So the verse preceding this, the last verse of chapter 1, tells us that while Jonah was sinking deep, entangled by seaweed, being pulled to the bottom of the ocean, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of this fish three days and three nights. How is that possible? Swallowed by a huge fish in his belly for three days. Really? You know, I've heard some people say that, well, this just couldn't possibly have happened. This is all just some kind of poetic imagery that the Bible is using here. Well, I, I don't think so at all. Because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus validates this as a real event a historical event. And he points to this exact event as a sign for what he's about to do through his death and resurrection. You know, if Jesus considered the story of Jonah a real event, and he would know better than any of us, it makes me hesitate to think otherwise. 
If you ask how a man can survive in the belly of a fish for three days, well, the answer scientifically is he probably can't. Any more than a man can survive in the tomb for three days and walk out alive again. You see, Jesus knew this was no ordinary event, and that's why he points to it. It was a miraculous sign of God's mercy and his powerful intervention in our lives. There's no point trying to explain it scientifically any more than trying to use science to explain the many miracles of Jesus. Yet we accept those for the miracles they are. The point here is that Jonah asked God for help, and God saved him miraculously with a fish. So when you read this, um, we need to find out where Jonah was emotionally. And it says he was in distress. He was in crisis. So when you read that, you know that he was in a tough spot. So when you read this prayer, keep in mind that Jonah, when he refers to his duress and crisis, he means the time he spent in the water, not the time he spent in the fish. He's being descriptive about what it was like in the water. The water is the threat of death, the crisis, the distress. But the fish, it's his refuge, it's a protection, it's salvation. So where is Jonah spiritually? It says he's in the deep, deep in the realm of the depth of the dead. That's where he's crying out from, the realm of the dead. The only thing I can think of here is this has to be a place that's very spiritually empty. There's nothing divine left within a dead body, right? So the realm of the dead is a very soulless place, a spiritually dark and empty place. And you know what? I think there's a lot of places like that right now in society. And I'm sure you can think of a few. But that's the type of place Jonah finds himself. And I think it frightens Jonah. As a matter of fact, it says he cries out to God from there. So what does Jonah do? He asks God for his help. In the first verse, in the verse 1, it said, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He finally prays. He finally prays. And all his running away from God in chapter 1, does he ever lift up a prayer? No, there's no mention of Jonah ever lifting up a prayer to God. He's running from God. In fact, he wants to cut off all communication. Even when he's asked by the ship's captain to pray to his God to save them from the storm, Jonah does not pray. How many of us have been there where you're running away and you cut off communication and you think that you can't go back to God because you haven't talked to him a long time? Well, this proves otherwise. Verse 2, Jonah says, I prayed, I called, he answered. I cried for help, and he heard my cry. This is good news for all of us. Because I don't know about you, but I've been in some places. I've been in some crises in my life. Do we cry out for God? Does he listen to our help? I don't know about you, but there's been some dark places I've been. I've been surrounded by the wrong people in my life. And I didn't have a communication with God. This prayer proves that God is there. And if we ask for his help, he listens to our cry. In spite of our guilt, in spite of our shame, and in spite of impossible circumstances. The second phase of this relationship with God that we see through this prayer that can give us insight is he accepts God's discipline. Jonah 2, 3 it's up there. Jonah 2.3 says, You hurled me into the depths, 
into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me, all your waves and breakers swept over me. So what is Jonah saying here? He's saying, God, you hurled me. You threw me there. So we heard back in chapter 1, it was the crew that picked Jonah up and threw him off the boat. But here, what is he saying? That God threw him into this situation? Does God do that? Is there a chance that God allows us into crisis situations, into adversity? You know, at Jonah's lowest point here, he acknowledges that God is the one who actually brought him there. I suppose nothing makes us feel worse than the thought that God has put us into an adverse situation because he's angry at us. You know, accepting God's discipline can be a hard Hard thing. Most of us avoid discipline of any kind. We don't like taking discipline from anyone, right? But the main key here is the way God uses it. Even when God is displeased with us, He never brings us into crisis or adversity simply to punish us. I mean, you look at the story. God's not out to punish Jonah for running away. You know, his purposes always include some form of redemption. And that's what God's trying to do here. He's trying to bring Jonah back into his plan. He's trying to reel him back in to his will. I use that reel there. The New King uh, James Version of this verse says, For you cast me into the deep. And there's something as a fisherman. There's something reassuring in the imagery of a fisherman's cast and his reel. How many people out here love to fish? There's some fish. How many love to do it the right way, which is fly fishing? Okay. You know, when you learn to fly fish, they tell you the most important knot that you learn to tie is that knot that ties the fly to the leader, right? The knot that ties the fly to the line. Because you want that knot to be, not to be tight and secure, and you want it to hold up in adversity. So when you make a cast, when it gets in the current, it doesn't break, the fly doesn't break away from the line and float away. Or when a fish grabs that bait and you're struggling to get him in, that knot is secure on that fly so the fish doesn't break away. Well, if it's true that God disciplines those he loves, then we can know that in his discipline, he may be the one who's casting us into the deep. But the line is still connected and the knot is still connected secure, and he still has us in the reel of his hand. The third, um, the third word and the third part of the phase here through the phase of his relationship with God that he's trying to promote here in this prayer is Jonah needs to anchor in God's promise and assurance. And sometimes this is one of the hardest for us. Jonah 2, 4 through 6, he said, I have... I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again forward to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath me barred forever. Jonah felt like he was cast out of God's sight, and now we get the imagery of him sinking down, 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 down into the deep. Jonah's been on a down direction, building momentum in a downward trajectory from the moment he began running from God. 
In chapter 1, it says Jonah went down to Joppa and got on the ship. On the ship, it says Jonah went down below the deck to fall asleep. Now he's sinking down into the depths of the sea. You know, the hardest shift for us to make in our lives is to try to change direction when our trajectory and momentum is going down. How do you break downward momentum and pull out of a fall? Our daughter, Christy, who lives here, is married to Brandon Russell. Um, they have our baby, uh, grandbaby Sage, who's two years old. But Brandon and Christy grew up here in the youth group, and Brandon was one of those kids you used to see out here with skateboards, jumping off the steps out here. As Dave Beatty would probably say, he was an insurance claim waiting to happen. But uh, Brandon always had kind of a thrill-seeking attitude about him. So Brandon became a very accomplished uh, skydiver, still is. Actually, he teaches it. But as part of his progression in that, he became a wingsuit flyer. And I don't know what, if you know about what wingsuit flying is. But, and he doesn't do this anymore. Since a grandson was born, he does not jump off of cliffs. But you jump off of cliffs, <laughs> and you fall in a suit that has wings on it and you eventually get lift and take off. So I got a few clips here, three different clips. This first one is Brandon on a cliff in Switzerland. There's his wingsuit. Now watch this fall. Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay, that was clip one. Now remember the old saying your mom used to say to you, if your, friend, if your friends jump off a cliff, will you jump off a cliff with them? Well, look at this next cliff. Here's four of these guys, four friends, I guess. Yeah, that's something. Anyway, I'll use this as an illustration in a minute, but I wanted to show you one last cliff. If you want to know what that one of those flights looks like after they get leveled out and take flight, this video is actually, it's shot where one guy is doing the filming with his GoPro and the other guys below him. Watch this thing. So here goes the other guy off the cliff. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. That is tough stuff. Well, I show you that because I want to use it as an illustration. I talked to Brandon about that. You know, when you take the leap, you're free-falling. You're in a free-fall. So as you fall, there's a few things taking place that allow you to change direction, actually pull out of that fall and achieve flight. First of all, this wingsuit is built with baffles, and it's built around specific aerodynamics. So as you're falling, the wingsuit baffles are actually filling up and the suit is shaping itself into an aerodynamic airfoil. The second thing that's happening is you're using the energy of the fall to transition into flight. You actually need to pick up speed as you fall. You need to fall faster Ugh. to have the energy available so the aerodynamics of the wingsuit take over and engage and drive you out of the fall and into flight. The third thing you have to do is you have to fall, you must adjust your position and be at the right angle. Your body needs to be at the right angle. If you're at too steep 
an angle, you'll never pull out of that fall. If you're at too high an angle, you'll stall and you'll still fall. So I tell you all that to tell you this. These are not just leaps of faith. They're highly technical jumps, and only a few people in the world have the expertise to do them, but that's not the important part. Um, it's not just the competence and experience of the person taking the leap. The reason they are able to fly is anchored in the laws of physics and principles of science, specifically Newton's law and Bernoulli's principle that assures that as you generate energy, you can generate lift. That's why we fly on airplanes. That's, that's why they fly. So the people who make these jumps, they are anchored. Their faith is anchored in God, but also anchored in the promise and assurance that these laws and principles hold true. Well, as we go back to Jonah... So we go back to Jonah. He's falling, he's falling fast. He needs something to grab a hold of, something, an anchor to hold on to, something firm to right his downward trajectory, to provide lift back up, to rise in a different direction. And he finds his anchoring in God's promise and assurance. Jonah 2, 7 says, But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. There's a change in direction. When my life was ebbing away, losing consciousness, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. You know, a couple of weeks ago in our home builders class, we talked about the difference between having an anchored hope and an unanchored hope. What we're talking about there is an unanchored hope is a hope that's just based on general good wishes and a desire for things to work out well for you. It's based on um, fate, destiny, karma, fairy tale endings, that sort of thing. An anchored hope. Well, we're talking about a hope that the Bible talks of. A hope that is anchored to something that's stronger than fate, backed by something higher than circumstance, and grounded in something deeper than good luck. That's what Jonah anchored himself to, was the promises and assurances of God. The fourth thing that we learn from this prayer and the phase of Jonah's relationship with God is he had to abandon his ways for God's ways. We have to do that too. We have to abandon our ways for God's ways. Jonah 2, 8 and 9 said, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. You know, people have different reactions when they're faced with adversity, when they uh, are put in a crisis situation. They can turn to God or they can turn away from God. You know, we can turn away from God. We could trust in our money and our brain power and our lawyers and our families and our own hard work. But in the end, you know what? They're all worthless idols compared to God. God wants to rescue us His way. And if we trust in anything else, we forfeit the grace, love, and mercy that God wants to show us. You leave the Lord out of it. You leave His mercy. In verse 9, we see Jonah is going to abandon those worthless idols, those ideas he had when he ran, and he's making a complete turn back to God. He says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord, but I will, 
I will, I will. Jonah has a complete turnaround. He abandons his ways and turns to God. This turnaround is tied to a word we don't necessarily love. It's the word repent. But repent literally means making a 180-degree turnaround. You know, John the Baptist spoke um, that word about repentance. Where did he speak that word? In the desert. Where does Jonah speak it here? In the depths. So where we're most vulnerable and most open to turning in our lives, to yielding and repenting, it's in our desert seasons, right? It's in when we're outside of our depths. And Jonah could only make a turn like this if he abandoned whatever in his mind made him run before, and he turns to God. So the four things we looked at, asking, accepting, anchoring, abandoning, they're not glamorous, but they're productive words. How do we know that? Because Jonah comes out of this experience a changed man. In verse 10, it says, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's not a pretty picture, kind of grossly <laughs> descriptive. But the point is, Jonah gets put back on dry land, a changed man, ready to do the will of God. And we'll hear more about what Jonah does in the weeks ahead. I want to go back to that question I asked you at the very beginning. Have you ever thought about the great lengths that God goes in order to save us from ourselves? When Jonah couldn't see or do anything, God was getting him right back to where he needed to be and where God had intended him to be all along. And when you and I feel like we're useless or done for, God is usually using that to get us right where he wants us. God didn't reject Jonah because he disobeyed. In fact, in fact, he patiently kept pursuing him and protecting him until he had a change in his heart. And that's good news for all of us who have been in rebellion or disobedience at some time in our walk. God always gives you another chance. Maybe you're in a mess right now because of some of the choices you made. Maybe you're reaping some of the things you have been sowing. And because of that, you may have felt that uh, you couldn't expect much help from God or that there was no way back to God's plan for your life. This proves differently. What God did for Jonah, he will do for you. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He's the one that pursues us. He's the one that rescues us. And as Jesus promised his disciples, he will not let us fall away. So as, uh, as we have the praise team coming back up for the closing, I'd like to tell you a story that I heard some 30 years ago that made an impact on my life. It actually happened uh, during Easter weekend in 1987 at a skydiving, we're keeping with the skydiving stuff here, at the skydiving center it was just southeast of Phoenix, Arizona. There was a gathering of over 400 skydivers for that weekend. They were taking part in this Easter weekend skydiving event. And it included a series of six-person formation drops as part of the event. It's a guy named Gregory Robertson. He's a veteran over 1,500 jumps. 
He was the load organizer and a team leader for a number of these six-person formation drops. And on one particular group that he took up, there's a young lady named Debbie Williams. She was 31, fifth grade teacher from Oklahoma. She was a novice jumper. She just had about 50 jumps. So the plan was this group was going to go up. They were going to exit the plane at about 13,000 feet. All six skydivers would come together, and they were going to come together, link up, join hands, form a free-falling circle, and then they were going to disengage from each other, get a safe distance apart so their chutes could open up, and pull their chutes about 3,000 feet above the ground. Well, that was the plan. Everything was going great at first. At 13,000 feet, one at a time, each one of the skydivers comes out of the plane. Gregory is the last to go out because as lead person, he wanted to visually monitor the group as they're coming together in formation. As he, as he watched, three of the skydivers had already come together. And they were holding hands, forming a circle. As Gregory watched, he saw that Debbie and another skydiver were above that circle. And they both made moves where they were going to dive down and connect with that circle. Gregory watched them. They started to dive down. But all of a sudden, he realized that their heads were down. And they were going on a collision course towards each other. And neither one could see the other one. They were just intent to getting in a circle. And they collided midair, 50 miles an hour. And Gregory, as he watched the, one of the skydivers, he got spun kind of out of control, but he regained his position. And he knew he was going to be all right. But Debbie, on the other hand, was knocked completely unconscious. Uh, Gregory said she looked like a rag doll. She was spinning out of control on her back, and he could see that there was blood in her helmet. And he had a split decision to make. She was tumbling out of control. He had to decide. He knew she was going to die. But what to do in that split second? Because he knew if he tried to help, there might not be enough time to help before they both hit the ground they both died. But he knew he couldn't let her just be there. So he dove. He got in a tucked position like those guys can do. She was falling at about 140 miles an hour. He had to get up to almost 200 miles an hour, and he flies down to her. She's tumbling around, so he had to wrestle her into a righted position so that her parachute would open. He pulls her ripcord. He gets out of the way and just has enough time to pull his own 10 seconds before they hit the ground. So Debbie hits the ground unconscious. She has a fractured skull. She has nine broken ribs. She has a punctured lung. She has a lacerated liver. But she lived. Gregory sustained some injuries too, but he lived. It's an amazing rescue story. They even called it an Easter miracle. Well, I have a rescue story that's even more amazing than that. I'm sure a lot of you in here can relate. You see, I was falling once at a certain period of my time uh, in my life. And I was free falling without a parachute. I was caught up in the sin and seduction that this world has to offer. And I was unconscious. I was unconscious to the things of God. And I was starting that trajectory down and I was gaining momentum. I was surrounded by the wrong friends, doing the wrong things, maybe even ungodly things. And as I fell, Jesus dove. He dove down and he flew down to me. He took the time to right me and get me in the right position. He took off his parachute 
and he put it on me. And I watched him smile as he pulled that ripcord and a canopy of grace and mercy opened up for me and I began to rise. But I watched Christ fall and impale himself on a cross for me. That's the rescue story that means the most to me. Maybe a lot of you in this room have that same type of story. What Jonah, what God did for Jonah, he will do for you. He will rescue you. That's why he sent his son. He pursues us, he rescues us, and he will never let us fall away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this prayer of Jonah to help us know that it's never too late, Lord, to call and ask for your help. To never, that it's not hard for us to accept your, accept your discipline and know that you still have us in your hand. God, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for sending Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, to rescue us from ourselves. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.